Welcome to the Mind Food Podcast, where we delve into the world of smart thinking content. I'm your host, Michael McHugh, the founder of Mind Food. We believe in providing our listeners with the latest in community, health, beauty and style, home and travel, food and drink, and much more. Join us as we explore fascinating topics, interview experts, and provide insights into living your very best life. This is the Mind Food Podcast. Today we speak with clinical psychologist Dr. Emily O'Leary, the managing director from Anxiety House and OCD Clinics in Brisbane, Queensland. Just explain to us the different types of anxiety disorders and how they actually manifest in individuals. Anxiety disorders are one of the most common mental health issues that people face. And there's a whole range of them. Probably the most common one would be social anxiety. And that's where people have this intense fear of speaking in public or new social situations. Then we also have generalised anxiety disorder where kind of call them like little worry warts. If you imagine chicken little, like people are racing around, literally if there's something to worry about, that's where people will actually go. It was, did I pay that bill? Am I going to get there on time? All of those types of things. And then we have panic disorder, which is that intense fear of panic and fear that it's going to co-occur or occur again. Obsessive compulsive disorder, although while it's characteristically sort of anxiety in nature, that's actually been given its own special little character, a special little category now. So that's not part of an anxiety disorder, but a lot of us still see it as such. And then a range of phobias. And look, people can be phobic of a number of things. It's interesting, actually, we've just started doing some virtual reality therapy for specific phobias to reach some of those populations that can be a little bit hard to treat, like adolescents. Have you seen a change in phobias and indeed anxiety disorders from the pandemic? Like are people coming to you with sort of slightly different needs than perhaps they were three years ago? It's interesting. Throughout the pandemic, we did see a number of people accessing therapy that might not have previously because a number of their existing coping strategies had been taken away. So people that would manage their anxiety through gyms and, and a range of social things, et cetera, et cetera, when they couldn't, that was when we saw a real uptake in, in therapy. So people that hadn't been to therapy started coming to therapy. People that were engaged in therapy particularly our clients with OCD, I think they sailed through it. They were like, I don't care about COVID, I'm focusing on my OCD. It was a new cohort for us at our clinics that were accessing therapy. And a lot of it was the feeling of trapped and not being able to use the things that they've previously coped. So I think certainly through COVID, absolutely. We have a number of challenges, though, with social media, with the financial climate, all of those things that are impacting on our clients. And we've always been busy. So I suppose for us, it's not so much that we're seeing more. We're just seeing different types of presentations. Mm. And it's not necessarily that it's for a person with specific social anxiety or generalised anxiety, it's actually the normal sort of anxiety, like a fear of interest rates or a fear of what's going on for their children at school. But the intensity Mm. has stepped up and that's what we're seeing a lot more. It's like everyday problems are just heightened and people are really struggling to manage that. Do you think, you know, with more people working at home now because of the pandemic and and I guess they've moved to that style of working. Has that also presented a different range of problems because communication is no longer in a workplace physically alongside work colleagues. It's more through a screen and Zoom. 
Have you seen a different type of issue come through because of that? Absolutely. I think working from home is a blessing and a curse. Like it's great in one way because in between work you can go and hang your washing out and do all these kinds of things. But at the same time, you can become quite isolated and a bit of a hermit. And that's not great for social skills and mood and all of those types of things. And even the culture of businesses, we're all social beings and it's great to connect. So I think there's a difficulty in that connectedness that whether you're introverted or not, we also need it. It forms part of our business and a culture. Also, I think the other thing that I notice, and if a person comes to see me and let's say that they've predominantly got mood disorder or something like that, a lot of the time I ask what their work setup is like. Because boundaries can become very inadequate in that where is your home and work boundary? Like where does one stop? And it, as easy as it is, it's, you know, you have those sideways conversations at home about work. Well, work's work. Mm. And I think sometimes when you've got those physical boundaries, like work, and then you're driving home, it enforces those mental boundaries in a way and it can provide an outlet for people to almost decompress. Like I know a number of my clients will use the trip home, whether that's on the train or whatever it is, to listen to a podcast or to listen to a mindfulness exercise. So by the time they get home, they're actually checking out. Mm. Whereas when you're at home, you're always on. I completely agree. I think also socially, we're sort of losing contact with more people in working from home. You really have to make quite a conscious effort to think, okay, well, what else do I want in my life or who else do I want in my life to actually have that face-to-face time? Because it's no longer nine to five, Monday to Friday when you're working from home. But in actual fact, it can also get quite boring (laughs) because it's the same thing. It's very easy to do party at the top. You know, when you're looking fabulous from waist up and then you've got your PJs at the bottom. (laughs) You know, you can get it, as you say, you can get a bit lazy. You can get a bit complacent. And even that kind of purposeful, I have to get up and shower and dress properly and get out the door and do all these things, while it can be a pain in the bottom, it's actually really healthy. Mm. I think you're right. There is something in that. And I also think what is missing now is that art of conversation. I know even with my team, you know, we Zoom every week, once a week. And I'll say, so what's happening? You know, and I'll go around and say, well, what's happening to you? And so, oh, I don't know. And I can tell it's because they've almost got Zoom fatigue. Nothing much has happened in their way. Yeah. It's still at home, still looking at the Zoom call, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that also blends into that over-reliance. I'm not saying an addiction, but an over-reliance on technology and constantly looking at notifications. And it becomes the mainstay where I liked what you said before about the, the art of conversation in some ways particularly with younger people coming through I sound like I'm a thousand but it's a skill of conversation and that art of how you actually talk to a real person and when you're taken out of that outside of any diagnosis or ASD and actually try and do that but you've been at home for so long it can get super awkward and it's basically a skill deficit. It's not actually a diagnosable disorder. It's lack of exposure to the fact that they haven't talked to a real person. <laughs> I know. I agree with you because that's even before you start looking at, oh, well, I'm naturally shy or, oh, well, I always feel awkward in a big group. That's even before that that bit kicks in. It's just, oh, my God, a real human. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I realised the other day I paint, as you know. I was on the way home. It was quite late and I filled the car up paid didn't talk to that guy but then I had to call into the local shop and pick up some stuff that was the first conversation I and I became so animated well, this woman must think I'm nuts you know because it was the first human I would as I'd actually 
communicated all day with. But I, I don't know, perhaps that's now the norm for some of us. It is, but then the question is, is that healthy? We all have those days where you get stuck into whether it's painting or mm. Netflix, and then it's very easy to get absorbed into that inner world. And some degree of that is good because you have to distinguish between, well, what is just good reflective practice or you being creative versus, no, you're actually being really avoidant and lazy. Yeah. And that's actually just really not helpful mentally. I think also the more time you spend alone, it's actually harder socially to then kind of confront that and kind of get back in and go, oh, God, did I really talk that much? Or did I really have to stand and listen to these people go on? You kind of forget <laughs> just the social norms, don't you? And that's the thing. It's consistent exposure. Absolutely. What are some effective strategies if people are feeling anxious within these situations? Planning. Look, it's really planning ahead is a big one. So if you know that it's going to be a bit of a struggle for you, let's say in a social situation, it's being really smart around managing that. So first off, it's knowing what you typically do when you're in the social situations and being really aware. I'm, I'm assuming you're working on this with a therapist. You're really aware of your avoidance strategies when you're there. Because a lot of the time when people are anxious, they do little behaviors like stand next to an extrovert and then they can just nod next to the person. So they don't actually have to do anything. Or they're the most helpful people in the kitchen getting the food done. Still don't have to talk to anyone. So you can be in a social situation and be really smart and avoiding everything. But what you want to do is really use the social situation and go, you know what, I'm really going to challenge myself in this. So first off, it's knowing what it is you're ultimately afraid about and, and afraid of. And with social anxiety, it's, it's fundamentally that you're going to do or say something that's going to make you feel humiliated and embarrassed. So having some peace around that, that that's a fear, but it's not a reality for you. And we kind of need to test that out a bit because you're actually a decent person. You've never really humiliated yourself. It's just this massive fear. But that's hard for a lot of people, don't you think? Just even saying that out loud or thinking that, that's that's a big barrier for a lot of people. Well, it's massive. And that's why, you, particularly with social anxiety, it's not something you might be cognizant of the fact that that's the fear, but the next step to go, and how do I do that? And how do I overcome that? That's where the evidence base is. You need to go and have therapy, predominantly cognitive behavior therapy. And going to a social situation, that's not something you do in the first session. Like that's something you work to as part of what we would call exposure response prevention. And it's something you plan for. And essentially, you're going into the lion's den, the lion's yeah. den, whatever that thing is. Yeah. And again, that's where you're taught strategies and techniques. You're taught to kind of challenge this belief that you're going to embarrass yourself. But 100%, yeah. it's, it's hard. That is anxiety. Like anxiety is a thing that people avoid. It's scary. They go, this is the mental thing. Is It's scary. I don't want to have this. I need to get away from it. It's dangerous and it's hard. And the answer to that is, yes, it is all of those things. <laughs> then we need to trade that off with, but how much do you want this to impact your life and what things is it taking away? Mm. And that's there is a, people moving. There is a real confidence in that. There's something you said and I want to touch on. How can someone really differentiate, though, between sort of levels of anxiety and when it might be time to seek professional help? You know, because a lot of people are so in their heads, it's hard to know, mm, is this sort of, you know, so-called normal or yeah. am I now kind of, oh, this, I, no, I do need to go and talk to someone. I think it's such a great question because we actually get asked this at least once a day. And first thing is, is really to say anxiety is normal and healthy. If we didn't have it, 
we wouldn't be alive. We'd be walking in front of things. So it's something that's actually a good thing. We just, I will often say to people, we just need to sort of take a dollop off. But the issue is in differentiating, say, anxiety from clinical anxiety is one of severity. There's a number of factors. First one, severity, in that it's out of proportion to the thing you're looking at. Let's say a party. Your partner said, okay, we need to go. And, you know, Joe and Martha's, we need to go over there. Most people would have some anxiety, a little bit of butterflies. Maybe they don't like Joe and Martha, but they'd go. Whereas a person with anxiety would be doing everything under the sun to get out of it or would go with clearly quite a lot of physiological distress. The other one in terms of distinguishing is duration in that it doesn't really remit. It just keeps on going and it seems to be persistent for an extended period of time. It's not something that just comes and goes. And the other one is really the degree of avoidance and impact on a person's life. So if it is actually impacting your life or your families, then it's an issue. In terms of treatment, though, you know, because there's a huge kind of spectrum Mm. there. What sort of treatment are we looking at? Well, you know, if you're going to get a mental health issue, anxiety is not a bad one um, to get. It's actually not something good outcomes. And I know a lot of my clients will look at me like, did you just say that? I'm like, I really did because <laughs> it actually has some really good research behind it. There's a range of evidence-based therapies. There's cognitive behaviour therapy. There's about four or five really good evidence-based ones. What they mainly focus on is encouraging a person to evaluate the thoughts that aren't helpful for themselves build in a whole lot of really good techniques. And then once that person is feeling really confident with their therapist or with whomever they're working, then we do what's called exposure response prevention. And that's kind of like the big guns of therapy. And it's where you go and test out these things, like we were talking about before, the social things. And I agree, it's really hard. And that's why when you're looking at anxiety, it's not just the techniques that you need to learn, or it's not just putting yourself in front of your fear. It's really important to change your mindset rather than saying, please, anxiety, leave me alone. We need to flip it and go, let's bring this on. Let's let's go for this. And I know that's a hard sell, but over time, learning techniques and having some success and building the relationship with your therapist, clients to get there. Like people get there and they're ready to go. I'm ready to go to that party and I'm going to initiate a conversation with a brand new person. Does it make them more anxious? Absolutely. I bet it does. <laughs> and, and look, unfortunately, this is the thing that about anxiety treatment is that in order to get better, you actually need to get worse. Yeah. Which isn't a particularly good first line in therapy. I guess it's about identification though, isn't it? It's about being honest with yourself and with your therapist to identify that. It is. But by the time people get to therapy, they're so jack of it and so over yeah. it that they're really like, come on, I want to get this done. And so you use that to work together as a team. Like it's very collaborative. And I think the thing is, I often say to clients when they're doing exposure response prevention, which is essentially confronting the thing you're afraid of and then stopping what you typically do to avoid it, is you are going to feel more nervous or more anxious in that situation. But you're going to get something out of it, which is kind of better than before. Before you were just anxious and you got nothing. Now, if you actually do ERP you are actually going to get on that road to recovery. So it's kind of like embracing the anxiety, there is an outcome. It's more than just coping mechanisms. It's, it really is a long-term solution. I lo- use that word loosely, but it really is working towards that, isn't it? 
so recovery and, and you want to look at recovery minimizing relapse it is sort of around that 12 to 16 sessions predominantly it's not something that people can go in for one to two sessions and go i'm going to manage my anxiety because what you're doing is breaking down long-standing avoidance behaviors and those behaviors have been built protecting fears like i'm going to look silly in front of people Mm. and so it is baby steps and, and it is really coping strategies absolutely but I think one of the things that I wish was sometimes reinforced a little bit more is that when people say, oh, just get some techniques and do X, Y, and Z, it's a little bit piecemealy in that techniques don't really do a lot to help anxiety and they're really not designed to make the anxiety go away. Fundamentally, techniques are designed to almost cheerlead a person so they can actually get through exposure response prevention which is the active ingredient in therapy. Techniques don't change anxiety, if anything, they just make a person feel slightly better. What we wanna do and where we wanna get people to is confronting their fears in a way that's not gonna freak them out or be really harsh and punitive. It's so fascinating because we all suffer from some level of anxiety. And as you speak, it just makes so much sense. But I think currently we were in this very weird, you know, as you said, there's so many financial pressures now, work pressures, you know, home pressure, you know, there's, there's, you know, look at the climate, what's happening there. God knows there's flooding. There's, it just doesn't stop. It seems there's so much coming at us. Mm. It's a very different time. It feels in our lives at the moment. Do your patients sort of come at you with that as well? Like there's almost a hopelessness of anxiety because, well, what can I do? You know, I think it's a, it's a great, Point. And I, I don't think that is stated by clients, but it's certainly the context and it's like a weariness yes. feel. Yeah. So they will come in and say whatever, you know, the content is of the, of the anxiety issue or, or something. But then you can see how, whether it's the financial climate or on the back of COVID or the over-reliance on working from home, that has contributed to that issue. And I think there is a pervasive weariness that people are experiencing it. Mm. And some are aware and some aren't. It's just kind of floating in the background. It's the context for lots of things. Emily, I ask everyone this in the show. What has been, in your lifetime, your favourite meal? What a wonderful question. And is it wrong that I have so many? (laughs) Everyone pretty much says that. They can't choose. Give me one. Oh, look, I can easily choose. This is my, a number of foods that come to mind. Look, I, I am going to be really boring, but my favourite meal is a stock standard roast. And it's because I think I had my family, they're quite good cooks, so they used to do lots of fancy things. But I really craved a good old-fashioned roast gravy, potatoes and peas. God, yeah. that, I feel like I'm a thousand, but... That's what I like. And I like simplicity. So if friends take me out to fancy meals, it's basically wasted. Yeah. Give me a good solid roast. And tell me, has there been one roast you can remember that you just loved? Look, I'll have to go back to to South Canterbury. I think they probably do the yummiest roast. Probably the worst roast I had was actually in Tenerife. And I think they were trying to be fancy and they actually did the roast. It was perfect, looked gorgeous. And then I put chocolate sauce on it, um, chocolate gravy sauce. And I was like, why? You know, it's just, and I never went back. Like, you just, you lost a customer. Not happy. Not happy, Jan. No. Emily, thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. 
We hope you found this episode informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. Also be sure to check out MindFood Magazine, Facebook, Instagram and Pinterest for even more smart thinking content. In our next episode, we talk to best-selling author Sue Williams from Elizabeth and Elizabeth with her brand new book, That Bly Girl. Until next time, this is Michael McHugh from MindFood. 